We come this Lord's Day to continue in our study on the subject of the God of all comforts. Everyone longs for a comforter in times of trouble, not just words, but someone to come along beside us, help carry the load with us, or at least to understand and sympathize with our trouble. In order for Jesus to comfort us by saving us, it was necessary that Christ have no man to comfort Him at the cross. Having suffered Himself without a man to comfort Him, our Lord Jesus is bound and determined that we shall never be without a comforter. Jesus called the Holy Ghost our comforter, whom the Father would send in Christ's name after He rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. John the Baptist foretold that Christ would baptize His people with that very Spirit of God that descended upon Him at His baptism. Jesus promised us that the Holy Ghost within us would help us to reply to our persecutors and that indeed it would be the Spirit speaking through us and for us to defend the honor and right of our Savior. Jesus also promised that the Holy Ghost would come to all those who believe in Him and would be as a river of living water which is life unto His people. This would happen after the ascension of Christ into glory after His sacrifice and resurrection. Water is essential for life and dehydration is often the cause of sickness and even death. It can come upon a person suddenly. They will turn weak and disoriented and faint. Christ's promise of living water had previously been revealed to the woman at the well. She misunderstood Christ's meaning, thinking that she would never have to draw water from the well again. But Christ was speaking of new life in Him by the Holy Ghost, which is pictured by a boundless supply of living water. That water is described as living or flowing, not a pond or some body of stale water with scum and algae growing in it. But no, it is living water, fresh flowing water, indicating an abundant and perpetual life generated by the Holy Ghost in believers. Christ promised to us is God's Spirit in us, reviving us, regenerating us, making us born again unto spiritual life as Jesus had described to Nicodemus. Our new life in Christ is not something we receive and then uphold by ourselves. Rather, our new life is animated and purified and sustained by the Holy Ghost within us. He dwells in every believer, as Christ promised and the Apostle John explained to us. Without that regeneration, without that spiritual life, that living water, Men are dead against Christ and His gospel. Even His miracles cannot convert such dead men because they have no life in them. The Lord Jesus reminded His disciples of His promise of the Holy Ghost that very evening that He rose from the dead. Jesus appeared before His terrified disciples who were still broken by His death and refusing to believe the witnesses that Christ had risen already. Jesus showed them His wounded hands and sighed, and then the disciples were glad, for they knew He was risen and had defeated death on the cross. At which point, Christ breathed on them and commanded that they should receive the Holy Ghost not many days hence. At Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Ghost was accompanied by a display 
of power and signs and wonders. But Christ's promise is sure to all those who trust in Him. And that Spirit comes like the wind, not at our command and unseen by us and according to the Spirit's design and not our own. None of us can command our own regeneration and faith. None of us can carry them out or execute them. None of us can command the regeneration of our lost loved ones either. But His coming is mysterious and inexorable according to God's choice and purpose and will, not under the control of mortal men. When the Holy Ghost comes to us, He embraces us, gives us new life in Christ, and grants us the faith to believe the Gospel. Without the coming of the Holy Ghost as our comforter, we should be bereft and lost and hopeless. But those who love Jesus and delight in His table and lay hold of His sacrifice as their only hope can only do these things by the presence and power of the Holy Ghost within us. So the comfort we have in the Holy Ghost is firstly that He dwells in us giving us life, sustaining us in life on account of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. But Christ, when He promised directly in John chapter 14 the sending of the Holy Ghost by the Father at the request of Christ, describes additional reasons why we are comforted by the Holy Ghost. In John 14 at verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Now this is a Comforter in addition to Christ's implicit condition of being our Comforter. We're comforted by Christ. We're comforted in Christ. He has comforted us for all the reasons that we've spoken of the last 42 times we've spoken on the subject of the God of all comforts because He is our Savior, our Redeemer, the One who rescued us from folly and sin and shame and death. So He will send another Comforter that He may abide with you forever. This is a reference to Christ soon departing and ascending back to heaven. That is, in His physical person. Of course, He is here. He is everywhere. The Spirit of God is everywhere. Christ is omnipresent in His deity, but in His humanity He is localized in the physical body which was made for Him by the Father at the Incarnation. So He is promising these people, His disciples, another comforter, who will never leave, that He may abide with you forever, not ascend back into glory and be at work preparing a place for us like the Lord Jesus had just said He would be. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him. The Spirit of truth, that is as opposed to the spirit of error, demon spirits, falsehood, ignorance, The Comforter is the Spirit of truth in that He conveys truth, is truth, communicates to His people whom He comforts the truth. But the world, you see, is oblivious to Him. They can't receive Him because they don't know Him. But ye know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. 
This will be a personal thing that Jesus is promising, a personal comforter, that we will know because He will take up residence within us and He will be with us. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So Christ is saying here that even though He will be physically absent, His body ascended unto glory, but one day soon we shall see Him when He returns in a bodily form. But He's saying here that when the Comforter comes, it is as if Christ has come. It is Christ's representative. Christ's Spirit, you see, that comes as the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, to live and to be and to dwell in the people. And He elaborates furthermore what it is that the Comforter will do in a few verses later at verse 25 of John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. Therefore, these things have I spoken unto you being present with you. That is, I've been teaching you here in my physical presence with you. And all through my ministry, I've been teaching to you. And he's just taught them some more things here in the passage that we read. But the Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I have said unto you. Now this is a crucial work of the Comforter. One of His major projects, if you will. Christ compares His personal face-to-face teachings with the work of the Comforter. He will teach you all things. So the Comforter takes the place, if you will, in the hearts of the Lord's people of the physical, tangible, bodily presence of Christ and continues the work of Christ, which is to teach His people the things that God wants us to know and that we must know in order to have peace, in order to be right with God, in order to have a grasp of our justification and God's declaration of our being without fault for Jesus' sake and of our sanctification and of our hope which is to come. He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. That is, whatever it was that Christ had said to them. Now this is pretty important, you know because Christ would soon be taken up to glory. That's what He's been telling them before, and they're not very pleased with it. They're not pleased that Christ will be ascending to glory. So Christ is explaining to them that they will receive the Comforter, who will be in Christ's stead, who will be in the hearts and minds and bodies of every believer who trusts in Christ, and will continue the work of Christ in communicating the things that be of God. The problem, of course, is that our minds are frail and they fail us to remember what our loved ones have said and done, don't they? You know, we always say when a loved one dies that gone but not forgotten, but very soon we begin to forget, don't we? Time heals the wounds, assuages the guilt, and sometimes we feel guilty because of that that we don't feel as bad about the fact that we've lost our loved one as we did when they first left, when they first passed away. 
But no doubt that's the Lord's purpose, that we should not continue to linger in sorrow over these things. But the fact of the matter is, is that our minds will fail us and we will not be able to recall all the things, important things, that our loved ones said and did. Now nowadays, of course, we have a slight advantage. We have photographs and we have videos of people that we want to remember, that we can study later on. And when we look at them, they bring to mind, don't they? Things about our loved ones that might have slipped our mind. Our mind is reinforced by those things. And we also have letters and writings that we can read and study. But this failure of the mind to recall the important things that Christ taught and that we were supposed to know, you see, are cured by the Comforter. That's one of the reasons Christ has promised that He will ask the Father to send the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, to dwell within us so that He might bring all things to our remembrance that Christ said during His ministry. Now this is particularly applicable, isn't it, to the apostles. It's very important for the process of the writing of the Scriptures by the apostles. You read through the Gospels and you wonder, did these people take contemporaneous notes of these conversations? Some of them are pretty complicated. Some of them are pretty extended. No, it was the Comforter bringing to mind, to their minds, the remembrance of what Christ said in His ministry. That's a very critical aspect of the reliability of the Gospels and of the truthfulness of what the apostles recorded about what the Lord Jesus had said and done. The Comforter recalled to the apostles the actual words Jesus said so they could faithfully record those words so that we can have those words now. You see, the Bible is a partial work product, is it not? A record of what God wants us to know about Christ and the Gospel and His teachings. It's a work product of the Comforter upon the hearts and upon the minds and upon the hands that wrote out the Gospel message and the Gospel story of Christ's time in this world. It's a record of what God wanted us to know and what the Comforter reminded the apostles to include in the things that they wrote. The Comforter made sure that the men of God called to record His Word did it accurately. And this all flows from this promise that Christ made to us that the Comforter would bring to remembrance all the things which Christ had said. In this promise of Christ as to the functioning and purpose of the Comforter is an implicit stamp of approval upon the inspired words which the apostles and other chosen men wrote when they wrote the New Testament of God's Word. And this is why in another place Paul says that the Scriptures are inspired by God. They're God-breathed. You see, how did God do it? He did it by means of the Comforter, bringing to mind the things that God would have us to know. And it says also teaching them. Teaching them. And to help them recall what Christ taught and provide us our confidence in God's Word. Now this teaching is no doubt additional revelation that God revealed through the Comforter 
to people like the Apostle Paul, for example. Paul actually said that it was revealed to him by Jesus Christ Himself. Apparently, Paul had a vision of Christ or a post-ascension view of the Savior. He saw the Lord Jesus after He had gone to glory. And this is a mystery, is it not? But no doubt it was partly the work or mostly the work or possibly exclusively the work of the Holy Ghost working in Him to teach Him things that we needed to know. Now, this promise that our Comforter will teach us and bring to mind Christ's teaching, it applies to us also. The Holy Ghost does not teach us some new thing that's novel, that's not in God's Word, but rather the Comforter within us teaches us from God's Word things that we didn't realize before were there. And how often when we read the Scriptures we experience this work of the Comforter in showing us, in revealing to us things that we never noticed before. If some preacher had told us about it, it slipped our mind or it didn't catch hold like it should have. And oftentimes these things that are shown to us by the Holy Ghost working in us, especially when we read and study God's Word, are things that once that happens, we can never forget them. They're so burnt in our consciences and in our minds. But He brings to mind the truths He knows we need to recall at the times that He knows we need to recall them. Being knit with us, you see, God's Spirit and our spirit in sweet communion, in a way that is mysterious and that can only be brought forth by the power of God. You know, two people, people say their hearts beat as one together and their spirits commune with each other. But that's nothing to be compared with the way in which the Comforter communes with the spirits of the people of God and their spirits with Him. And we'll have more to say about that in future lessons but being knit with us, God's Spirit and our spirit in sweet communion and companionship with each other, the Comforter knows us better than we know ourselves. And He communicates with our spirit the things that be of God and the things that be of His Word. We don't have to live in struggle alone, for our Comforter is here with us to work in our hearts to learn and remember all the gospel truths that we need to know. Now, we still have a duty to read and study God's Word, and it's by reading and studying God's Word that the Comforter works many of His great works in our minds to bring to mind to us. He's not going to put into our minds things that we've never read or never heard, gin up brand new stuff. That's not the way the Comforter works. He brings to mind the things that have been recorded in Scripture, which the Lord Jesus taught, which the apostles taught. Now Paul expands on the work of the Comforter, the Holy Ghost dwelling in us, in the text we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul lays out the fact that the world rejects the Gospel, rejects Christ, rejects the cross, their foolishness to them. They can't know them. They're not understandable. They reject them. And you remember what he said, that the gospel preaching to the people that he engaged in was not the wisdom of man, 
but it was the power of God unto salvation. You remember it said that to man it's foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are called to believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. And after he describes his gospel preaching and how it is not using the words of man's wisdom, but the words of the Spirit's wisdom, not the foolishness of men, but the power of God, at 1 Corinthians 2 at verse 9, he says this, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit knoweth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, a lot of people think that this text, I hath not seen, neither ear heard, nor hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him means that we don't know what God has prepared for us and what He has done for us. But that's not what it says. It says it hasn't entered into the hearts of man. What He's talking about there is into the natural man, the man without the Spirit, the man that is not the Lord's. He doesn't understand those things. Well, we ask, well, why not? They're written down in Scripture, aren't they? Well, He can't understand them without the Spirit working in Him, without the Comforter come to communicate the things that be of God. But then he goes on at the next verse, doesn't he? But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. So you see, Paul is talking about things that we know by the Spirit of God that the world doesn't know. Now think about the implication of that. The world without the Spirit cannot know. What does it say? The things which God has prepared for them that love Him. They can't know the Gospel. Oh, they can understand the words. They can repeat them. They can parrot them. They can even study them. They can even write scholarly articles about the Scriptures, can't they? But they can't know them in a way in which they would receive them and rejoice in them and trust in them, you see. They can't. Without the Spirit. The Spirit alone can reveal these things to people. And so that means when you come to understand some truth of God's Word, it's not because of your mental acuity or your perspicacity or your great study and scholarship or your wisdom or your IQ. None of that. It's because the Spirit has wrought in your heart to grasp and to believe and to understand and to rely upon and to trust. This introduces a little section where Paul expands upon this truth that the things that God has prepared for His loved ones cannot be known and understood in a deep and spiritual way without the Spirit of God showing those things to us. And he asserts that to those who believe in Jesus, the Spirit has shown these things, has revealed these things. Notice then in verse 11, he gives a little explanation which makes sense to all of us. For what man knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in it? So in our hearts we can know all sorts of things. We can think all sorts of things. We can believe all sorts of things. But they're largely hidden from other men, aren't they? Because they're only known internally. And that's what he means by 
that can only be known by the spirit of the man that is in him, that they're private things as it were. And he may or may not articulate them publicly to other people, but even if he does, it's imperfect, isn't it? We all know how we struggle sometimes to articulate the things that are in our hearts that our spirits understand and grasp, but that we cannot communicate to other people, much less if we are silent and do not wish to communicate them. But he's saying here that the reason that the Spirit can communicate the things that be of God to His people is for the obvious reason that the Spirit knows the things of God in an intimate way which creatures external to God cannot know because they are not in the heart and mind of God, as it were. They are things that only the Spirit can know. But you see, we have in the Comforter, we have this inside track, inside access to the things that be of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells with us and in us and communes with us and with our spirit so that we may know the things that be of God in a way which is impossible without the working of the Holy Ghost in us. So he says, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So these people who are natural, who have not the Spirit of God, they can't know any of this stuff in the manner in which it's necessary to know them unto salvation and sanctification and rejoicing and glory and resurrection. No man can know these things except by the Spirit of God working in him. Now this is a doctrine which is widely hated amongst false preachers and amongst large swaths of of the Christian church. Why? How can it be that we cannot know the things that be of God unless the Spirit of God comes within us and reveals them to us? That seems like that's not fair. That we shouldn't just be able to know these things. And that's the way a lot of us proceed We go around and we preach the gospel and we tell people the truth and then we're frustrated when it just goes right over their heads, when it bounces right off of their thick skulls, when the things that seem obvious to us, we cannot convey to them. And the reason is that they can only be discerned by and through the Spirit of God working in the heart of the unbeliever. And that's why Jesus said that unless you've been born again by the Spirit, You cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's so hard for us to grasp a hold of this truth that without the Spirit's mighty work in the heart of a person, they cannot come to believe and embrace and trust in the gospel of Christ. Then going on in 1 Corinthians 2 at verse 12, we see this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, without receiving the Spirit that is of God, without the Spirit of God coming into a person and conveying to him the things that be of God. You cannot receive the things, the free gifts that God gives to those people whom He will redeem. But then notice this at verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is a form of communication that cannot be 
engaged in by those that are lost, that do not have the Spirit of God within them. They have a way of saying things. They have a way of talking about the things of God's Word that are the words which men speak, which are totally ineffective and cannot convey the truth of what God has promised and prepared for those whom He will save. But then notice this, verse 14. The natural man, by which we mean the man who is in his sin without the Spirit working in him, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now there's the death knell, you see, to Pelagianism and everybody pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and just deciding on their own libertarian free will under their own steam that they're going to believe the Gospel. No, it says that without the Spirit, they can't know the things that be of God. In fact, to them they seem like foolishness. And that's what he had said in chapter 1 of the same epistle. Neither can they know Him because they are spiritually discerned But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul's conclusion is that the mind of Christ, which is the Holy Ghost, dwelling within the believer, is the way in which is conveyed to us the thoughts and intents and desires and loves and directions, and requirements, and purposes, and gifts, and rejoicing that is in the mind of Christ, that is God's provision of good things for them who love Him. And they can only be received and understood by the Spirit indwelling the man who was lost and bereft and in his natural, in his natural state. And if we know the Gospel and believe it and trust in Jesus for salvation, it is only because the Holy Ghost is in us and teaching us and showing us the things of God that are true and reminding us of what Jesus said and teaching us from God's Word and conveying to us these spiritual truths which Paul has made clear, cannot be grasped by lost men. You remember in a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote these words, Now no man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. And again, this doesn't mean that they can't parrot the words. It means they can't believe them. They can't trust in them. They can't rely upon them. And to go further than that, they can't rejoice in them and exult in them. People don't like Jesus Christ to be Lord unless they've trusted in Him and believed Him and embraced Him. They don't like that. They don't want Him to rule over them. You remember what the writer of the Scriptures said, they will not have this man to rule over them. That's the heart of the rebellious lost man, not to have Christ rule over them. But Paul says that if a person truly, honestly, and with great joy and rejoicing, says that Jesus Christ is Lord, He can only do that by means of the work of the Holy Ghost in His heart. And without that work of the Holy Ghost, He will not say it. And if He says it, He will not mean it. And He will not trust in it. 
and he is lost. Because Paul also said in another place that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So it's necessary that a person not only know how to articulate Jesus Christ as Lord, but believe it, trust in it, and rejoice in it and embrace it. And if He does, that's all by the act of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, coming into that man's heart and spirit and conveying to him that truth about our Lord Jesus. And if you understand the things of God, embrace them, not to reject them or scoff at them or bridle at them or express some distaste for them as so many people do then you have evidence of the Comforter who is comforting you. Because you know the truth comforts the people of God. Knowledge of Christ comforts the people of God. Knowledge of the Gospel, truth, and all of its glorious details comforts the people of God. And that's why if you have been comforted by those things, it's through the work of the Comforter comforting you, calling to mind those things. There are many who know what the Bible says and yet reject it. That is man's natural condition, dead in sins, to see the mighty miracles worked by the Comforter in you. Look around at how many people reject the Gospel, continue in their sins and rebellion, refuse to believe, and we think, how can they do that? How can they not see such a glorious truth? as salvation by grace through faith, not of ourselves, the gifts of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's tree to take away our sin. How can they not believe those things? Because the Comforter hasn't conveyed them to them and convicted them of them and convinced them of it. To us, it seems so obvious now, but the reason it's obvious to us is because the Holy Ghost has been at work teaching us, calling us, calling to mind for us the things of Christ? How many attend the Lord's Supper even not comprehending what it really means? And you know in bigger churches it's turned into a ritual, isn't it? And the people hardly comprehend what its true purpose is. And they're distracted by all the beauty of the architecture and the organ and the stained glass and all the robes and vestries and so forth. But if you and I grasp the Lord's table and rejoice in it, then the Comforter has used it, you see, to remind us of the truth about Jesus. Well, hopefully we can continue to discuss other things about the Comforter's work. But we are comforted around this table. The Holy Ghost uses these symbols to remind us in a concrete way about the body and blood of Jesus that was shed and broken to take away our sins. And in all of that, we receive great comfort and assurance through the work of Christ and the application of it by the Comforter. There's an old Puritan saying that says of our salvation and of the Gospel that the Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it in the hearts of His people. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us.
And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that You have provided us a sacrifice in Your Son, the Lord Jesus, that You found in Him a perfect Lamb of offering for the sins of Your people, that You laid on Him all of our crimes, and on the cross He was judged guilty in our place and exhausted all the demands of divine justice that we should have paid. And so therefore, we're set free. And we give You the praise that if wrought in the hearts of Your people an understanding and a belief and a trust and a reliance and a rejoicing in what the Lord Jesus has done for us on the cross when He shed His precious blood. We thank You that it executed that new covenant by which You promised to take away our sins and remember them against us no more and to put in us a clean heart and to put Your law in our heart and cause us to know the Lord, to be obedient, to desire to do His will, to do Your will. And we thank You that He executed that covenant by His blood like the execution of a will and testament by the death of the testator. And He took away our sin and brought about the promise that You would not remember them against us anymore. So we're justified by His blood and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for the cup He left us. We thank You that He thought to prepare for us this ordinance to remind us on a weekly basis of what He did and how it was done and for what purpose it was carried out. And we rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 192 in the black book. The wrath, the awful wrath that Jesus felt for me when bearing my sin's heavy load. He died on Calvary, but Jesus lives. The Savior lives in heaven. He pleads for me. And boldly I approach to God. His blood, my only plea. Number 192.